Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome to spring. another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Mark Staker, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Uh, doing great, thank you. Good, good. Glad to have you on, Mark. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, for my listeners, Mark is the author of Harkin, O Ye People, The Historical Setting of Joseph Smith's Ohio uh, Revelations. And uh, Mark, first off, appreciate having you on. I am really interested in this interview, if if for only the reason that I live about uh, an hour and a half west of Kirtland, Ohio. And I'm looking forward to the chance to talk to you about some of the things that have happened in my backyard. But before we get started with that, wondered if you might just uh, share with us uh, a little bio of yourself so that my listeners can get a feel for who you are. Uh, sure, glad to do that. Um, my academic background is I got a PhD in anthropology from the University of Florida, and uh, then I was hired by uh, the Church History Museum. At the time, it was the Museum of Church History and Art in Salt Lake, uh, where I worked as a curator and developed the exhibit uh, for the church uh, for a good 10 years and slowly worked into doing uh, historic sites restoration work. And uh, that's where my uh, experience in Kirtland uh, came from. Uh, I was responsible for helping with that project and ended up uh, doing a lot of research uh, to try to um, do an accurate restoration there, uh, reconstruct the buildings exactly as they uh, had stood at the time, as far as we could tell, um, and, and reconstruct the interpretation and, and tell the stories the way that they had really happened. Um, and so I spent a good 10 years doing that and pulling together that data. And as a result, I had all this data together that I wanted to share with people and did that uh, in this book. That's wonderful. I uh, wondered what years was it that you were over there in Kirtland? Um, 
roughly was the time period that I worked there. Gotcha. And I'm going to ask this. I, I don't know my timeline very well, but I know that Kirtland underwent a major restoration. Essentially, I remember when I first joined the church around 96 in going to Kirtland, Ohio to, to visit the church sites. And there were very few of them. And it was certainly not as extravagant as it is today. For my listeners who have not been to Kirtland, Ohio, if you go there today, it's a lot like Nauvoo in the sense that it's almost a small little town that's kind of gated off from the rest of the community. And you can visit all these different sites. And, and so I'm asking this, Mark, I don't, I don't really know the, the timeline here, but was this, you said 1998, 99, was this kind of the major rest, uh, restoration of this, uh, of this Kirtland area? It was. Um, back in 1956, um, a church history buff and uh, historic sites enthusiast Wilford Wood uh, purchased the John, John and Elsa Johnson farm in Hiram, Ohio, and that was the first acquisition in this area. Um, and so there, you know, back in the 1950s, the church began to interpret the history in this area where they did that by hanging up a bunch of curtains in the home and putting some sculpture in there and just telling stories. There was no attempt to try to uh, restore anything the way it was or interpret uh, the location of events uh, that took place. Uh, that first happened in the 1970s. Um, some of my colleagues uh, and my predecessors that worked in the same department as me uh, went and did uh, some restoration work out in Kirtland proper, the, the um, Newell K. Whitney store, and uh, and also partly the home. The home, the Whitney home, was turned into a visitor center, and the store uh, was restored, uh, and it was finished in the early 1980s. And uh, those were the only sites really uh, historically interpreted at the time uh, we began our project. Gotcha. And that makes a lot of sense because when I was, when I was there several times early in my time in the church, you could go to the Kirtland Temple, which is owned by the Community of Christ, and they had a small visitor center there, which today, of course, is a lot bigger and, and redone. And you could go to, uh, the church visitor center that the, that the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints owned, but it was also kind of a, a small thing with, with a couple of buildings there to visit. No, no sawmill. Uh, several of the buildings had not, you know, even been refinished or allowed people in. So it's, it's really turned into quite a place to go visit for those, uh, members of the church who are listening who've never been to Kirtland. If you've been to Nauvoo and enjoyed that, I think you would enjoy Kirtland just as much. Mark, I also wanted to ask you too, somebody that, uh, is a good friend of mine, and I'm sure you couldn't have spent much time in Kirtland without having interaction with him was Carl Ricks Anderson. Uh, did you have a chance to, to get to know Carl? Uh, yes, I know Carl well. He's a great person and a good friend. Excellent. Yeah, he's a uh, head over our seminary program here and and he's the patriarch in Kirtland. So, and he's kind of the one of those experts on the Kirtland area. Uh, along with some of these things that you've touched on and written about as well, which we want to get to. Uh, so I want to kind of get into the book. Maybe if you want to just spend a few minutes telling us, and you kind of did hint on this already with the reason you wrote the book, but how long did it take to write it and, and kind of what was the purpose of writing this and, and your uh, your motives kind of going into this? Well, uh, I'm, as I mentioned, I spent about 10 years doing the research on this project and had all this data together. And I wanted to share it uh, in some venue. You know, I, actually, um, I just assumed it would be a, a series of journal articles that I would uh, publish. 
Um, but there were some issues that I wanted to get out uh, to a wider audience. I wanted them to be able to read the data for themselves, themselves, you know, the uh, various, uh, uh, in, well, you know, readers, students of, of Mormon history. And um, this seemed to be the most uh, appropriate way to do that. And so I worked with uh, Greg Colford of Colford Books, and he uh, agreed to publish uh, the material if I could pull it together. And so uh, I pulled it together um, in a loosely uh, geographically structured way so that it looked at e- uh, each of the historic sites we had done and some of the information in, uh, that had uh, come out of the work for the, those each uh, uh, distinct areas and um, pulled that together and we turned it over to uh, Levina Fielding Anderson, who did the editing for the book. Wonderful. Again, we're speaking to Mark Staker, author of Hearken, O Ye People, the historical setting of Joseph Smith's Ohio Revelations. I, I want to, probably the, the biggest question I want to ask, and I want to get to it kind of early here, is the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. And this is a topic that for, for Latter-day Saints who are only um, aware of their history on kind of a surface level. We know that the bank failed. We know that uh, members of the church lost their testimony over this issue and they left. It seems like sometimes in in lessons or when a person raises their hand to kind of talk about this issue, it kind of is described as one of these these things where the church or its leaders it doesn't come off really sounding like they're that heavily involved, but but from my understanding that this was really a deep and painful issue for some members, but I'll be frank, I don't even understand all the ins and outs. Would you mind maybe at least kind of running us through a, a surface level of what was going on there? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to do that. You know, I hadn't actually even planned on dealing with the Kirtland Bank uh, in this book because... Uh, it's not a historic site that we restored, and it wasn't part of the initial uh, research that I did. But I was invited uh, to present at a, a symposium on Oliver Cowdery, and he played a role in the bank. And as I began looking at that, um, I assumed, you know, that that issue had already been dealt with. But people have published on it a number of times, and there wasn't really much new information to share on that. And so I was focusing on other things that were really new information people hadn't read much on. Uh, but as I looked at the data, I realized uh, that there was a lot that hadn't been dealt with uh, before, and what had been dealt with uh, had holes in it, because uh, there was new information that was available that really helped us understand that whole issue uh, better. And so uh, the book ended up uh, dealing heavily with uh, the Kirtland Bank issue, and I think that that's uh, uh, just as it should be, because the Kirtland Bank really was a huge issue uh, for the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland. And just in uh, kind of uh, on a very superficial level, uh, what I ended up uh, concluding from the data was that the Kirtland Bank uh, was an attempt to help uh, the Latter-day Saint uh, members in Kirtland achieve that Enoch community that they had been talking about, to help them... Um, become a Zion people in the, in the way that uh, they understood that, and very similar to the way that uh, many of us understand that today. Uh, what the Kirtland Bank was all about was uh, that 
um, many people could own stock in the com- in the company. It wasn't just a few very wealthy people that could buy uh, $400 shares of stock, which is how most other banks operated. Uh, this uh, enterprise uh, had rich and poor. Uh, there were women uh, that were part of the leadership and that owned stock in the company. And there were uh, non-Latter-day Saints, uh, black and white. Uh, it was a very diverse mix of people that were brought together uh, to invest money to help build the community. And uh, the Kirtland Bank was designed then to help foster economic growth, but principally it was to help the poor. It was to help people coming into the area by buying a property and then dividing that property up so that uh, uh, people could buy it at a reasonable uh, rate. Uh, so, you know, with all these noble ideas, uh, what happened? Why did, why did the bank uh, end up failing? Well, uh, the data suggested uh, two things. One was that there was very strong pressure from outside. Uh, Grandison Newell, who has long been known to have played a role in the, the failure of the enterprise, it turns out that he uh, was an investor in the competing institution in uh, Painesville, uh, the county seat, uh, where the, the Bank of Geauga was located. And uh, he and some of his colleagues there had a financial interest in the failure of the Kirtland Bank. And they pressed heavy to do all that they could to see that that bank uh, failed. And at the same time, uh, I think that the bank would have continued had it not been for uh, internal dissension and that Latter-day Saints themselves began to lose faith in what they were trying to do. And one uh, individual in particular uh, was John Johnson, who had donated a lot of property to the church and was involved uh, heavily in helping uh, promote uh, land sales and had and had control over uh, quite a bit of land in, in uh, Kirtland. And he panicked and began selling rapidly uh, his property. And it seems that uh, the evidence seems to, to suggest that that's what initiated uh, the collapse of the institution was his attempt to pull out and pull away from supporting them. Gotcha. I, I know that critics will take the story and they'll talk about this being Joseph's fault. And I, I remember even hearing some story about there being a a chest that had money at the top so people would think that that essentially the bank was being backed and it was fine but that underneath all of that was was some other you know debris to essentially just weight down the chest meanwhile i know that you know defenders of the faith will talk about this this issue and will say essentially that joseph tried to let people know this was not going to work out well and that he essentially got out before everything went downhill uh, where do you come out on that issue well, uh, people very early were claiming, oh, that they didn't have all the money that, you know, they insisted that they had. Uh, but the people that are claiming that, um, do it in such a way that it's clear that they don't know, that they're guessing at that. And they're passing along stories that, uh, were commonly told about institutions throughout the region. Um, and, uh, a careful look at the data suggests that, uh, actually the amount of money that they, uh, claim to have had is what they had, 
but they issued a lot more uh, banknotes than the actual money that they had in the institution, which was uh, very common at the time. Uh, they actually appear to have been more conservative in their issue of banknotes than most institutions. Um, so that's that idea of well, they didn't have uh, everything that you know they were they they had iron or whatever in the cases and just gold on the top or silver coins on the top. Some suggest uh, that just doesn't doesn't hold up. Uh, a careful look at the data uh, suggests that that just uh, doesn't explain uh, the issue at all. Um, on the other hand, uh, Joseph Smith from the very beginning, he uh, this is uh, at a time in the country when everybody is enthusiastic about starting banks and there's this wild speculation going on. And Joseph Smith actually talks about all other institutions failing and that this institution uh, can withstand that and stand when all others fail. Well, uh, it's clear from the historical record that there was a panic in the United States, that banks uh, all over the country failed. And so to take him at face value, you have to say, well, he either was a prophet or he was this incredible economic genius um, that foresaw, you know, this panic coming when nobody else did. And those closest to Joseph all were um, unanimous in, in their uh, insistence that he was not an economic genius, uh, that, as a matter of fact, uh, they had a hard time trusting him with economic matter, matters because he just didn't seem to have those kind of skills. And so for him to actually foresee uh, what was going to happen, I take that as... Uh, an indication that that he was inspired and directed in the things that he was doing. Now, awesome. The, you, you had raised one additional issue uh, that I, I wanted to just uh, briefly address, and that's the idea of that uh, there was some forgery going on. You know that uh, uh, that they accused uh, people of issuing uh, money that uh, they didn't have it, and uh, that happened by others after Joseph Smith stepped down from the bank. Uh, some of his associates then uh, were uh, did issued money illegally and uh, took advantage of the situation and took advantage of the saints. Gotcha. Good. I'm glad to hear that because it's one of those issues in church history, as you pointed out earlier, that that really hasn't been addressed from a scholarly standpoint. And uh, to see that you you hit on this on the in the book, I think will do uh, a great justice to the church. And to know the details and the full story of all that went on there, I think is helpful. And so I appreciate you you sharing that insight. The other thing I wanted to ask you about in the Johnson Farm, we we know a little bit about the family, and we know that you know from that their conversion. At least we get this story, I think, uh, early on in in our classes in church. And again, living close to Kirtland, I'm familiar with the story because I've heard it several times. But Elsie Johnson the uh, the mother of the home at the Johnson farm and she essentially goes to the prophet Joseph Smith Smith she has a lame arm and she isn't converted yet she asks Joseph to to heal her and we're told that he lays hands on her and uh, and that healing takes place and and that by some miraculous manifestation of God that that she's now able to lift her arm up and I hope most of my listeners will be familiar at least with kind of the the hint of that story having been told to them before. But is there anything else that you, you want to add to that or, or am I getting the story right or there's some details that are important to that that I'm not hitting on? Well, there I think that there are some additional details that are helpful to that story. Um, B.H. Roberts uh, tells that story in, you know, in the, in the classic history of the church. 
and he drew from a non-Mormon account to tell that story. And he did that because it's a, I've, I've, it's a powerful narrative to say, well, this is a non-Mormon, a non-believer in Joseph Smith who tells this story, um, confirming, you know, the, the reality that it happened. Uh, but there are a number of Mormon accounts as uh, well that they tell the story in a, a little more rich detail and they understand some things that are going on that this non-Mormon uh, didn't uh, understand. And there are several other non-Mormon accounts as well that help uh, flesh in the details, but uh, the account that we're often uh, familiar with, we're most familiar with, uh, doesn't understand how the, the priesthood blessing uh, took place and what was really going on, but the evidence suggests that John and Elsa Johnson actually had faith before they went to Joseph and knew that, that he could heal Elsa's arm, or at least that they hoped that he could do that. And they had read the Book of Mormon. Uh, they believed that it was true. And they went, uh, the, their minister accompanied them, a doctor accompanied them, expecting, you know, the, to see something. Um, and they asked Joseph then to heal her arm. Uh, he blessed her. And he blessed her uh, to that she would be healed. Uh, she was, and she was able to do things uh, that she hadn't been able to do for a while. Now we don't know exactly. Her family um, gave different accounts as to what was wrong with her. They didn't really seem to know quite uh, what was wrong with her, and we don't know how all that progressed. But uh, what I find interesting is a photograph of her that was taken. Uh, several decades later, shows her holding her right arm up as though it's a lame arm again. She, uh, by then, she had uh, long since left the church um, and, and no longer, you know, was associated with uh, members of the church. But uh, that suggests to me that whatever had happened to her eventually uh, came back, and she still had uh, that lame arm. But at least for the time uh, she was a member of the church, uh, she was healed from the, her malady. That's neat. And you also talked about there's several uh, corroborating testimonies to this story from non-members. And I find that intriguing. Often the critics want to say, you know, they have to take these miracles that happen within Mormonism and they have to paint them as somebody either making them up or exaggerating. But to have some non-member stories that corroborate these has to add some weight that something miraculous happened. Uh, it does, and um, her neighbors, when they went back from this healing, uh, many of their neighbors joined uh, the church, uh, so they were clearly aware of her condition before and after, and the whole context, uh, in, in addition to the uh, four or five uh, corroborating stories, um, you know, suggests that something did happen, as they claimed it did. Awesome, awesome. I uh, I remember going into the Bishop's storehouse, the, uh, the Newell K. Whitney store, there in Kirtland, and when we went in, uh, of course, you've got the the shoes, which are the same for the left and right foot. You've got the mail there. You've got different fabrics and other things in there. And it's in that uh, Newell K. Whitney store that the sister missionaries would would tell us stories about the law of consecration, which which I believe it started in Kirtland. Uh, and I know that that went on for some time, but I also am aware that at some point that failed. And we're told that it's because the the saints struggled to live it. Wondered if you might uh, help us paint kind of a picture of of that law of consecration and uh, help us kind of understand maybe what went on there. Well, interestingly, uh, the law of consecration, the way we typically think of it, uh, was implemented in Missouri, and it actually took a little different course in Kirtland. 
And the way that they differed was uh, in Missouri, uh, the Latter-day Saints would consecrate all of their property to the bishop, and then he would give them back a stewardship that they would then uh, work. You know, they would have their home and, and their land, and they'd work the property, and um, whatever was a surplus then would be given to other people. In Kirtland, uh, there were some people that consecrated their property that way, but this was people that were gathering to Missouri, and they would consecrate their property in Kirtland and then go to Missouri. Uh, the Kirtland Latter-day Saints actually uh, did things a little bit differently, and I find it really interesting because Newell K. Whitney was the bishop in Kirtland and Edward Partridge the bishop in Missouri, and eventually Newell K. Whitney becomes the presiding bishop of the church. And his model uh, seems to prevail. And what that model is, is basically uh, the Latter-day Saints would consecrate of their resources. Um, what they would do is go to the temple once a month, having fasted, and they would give the... Uh, the food that they would have eaten during that fast period, and then the bishop, Newell K. Whitney, would gather that food together, and he would uh, take it back to the bishop's storehouse, to the uh, to his Kirtland store, and there the poor could come and get the food or the resources that they needed. He also implemented uh, what he called a, a feast of fat things, where the poor could come. Particularly, they did these at um, patriarchal blessing um, meetings that they would hold, where people would come and get their blessings, and then the poor could come and, and be fed. Uh, there as well. So it's a very different kind of approach that he took. And the Kirtland Bank that I mentioned earlier uh, grew out of uh, this different kind of approach, which was to help people get uh, the means that they needed uh, to supply themselves, to support themselves through regular uh, economic efforts. So they weren't cooperative efforts uh, the way we tend to think of those as much as they were businesses that were going on, uh, such as the Kirtland Sawmill and um, and other things that uh, allowed them to uh, then support themselves and support their family. Me, you, you talked a little bit about uh, Newell K. Whitney and Edward Partridge, the uh, the first bishops in the church, and that led to my next question, which is I wanted to ask you, I I wanted to know in regards to the office of a bishop early in the church, uh, what that office entailed. And so we know bishops today in the church, one, they certainly oversee, just like bishops then did, uh, the, the bishop's storehouse, they oversaw goods, they took care of uh, the poor and needy that were among them. But bishops today have a, a much more ecclesiastical uh, leadership role as well, where they oversee a ward and members and essentially, you know, take care of the, the weekly meetings and, and make sure that all those things are arranged right and the things are in their proper order. Did the, did Edward Partridge and, and Bishop Whitney, did, did they operate in that same kind of role or was it just a, a welfare type of role? Well, it's interesting uh, to look at the early uh, historical sources to see how they were trying to feel out their their way. Um, Bishop Partridge actually seems to have considered himself uh, the leading ecclesiastical authority in the church, and so there was some tension between him and Joseph Smith until Revelation uh, resolved all of that. Um, but uh, the idea of what does a bishop do uh, was not clear at the time. Uh, before the Latter-day Saints uh, he had even come into the area, there were some communal efforts going on, and they had um, overseers of these groups, which, uh, you know, is the English word for, for the Greek uh, bishop. And these overseers would help kind of lead uh, the, these communal efforts. 
And it's not clear exactly how uh, the first bishops, Bishop Partridge and Bishop Whitney, uh, saw their role in relation to what had happened before. Uh, certainly they knew that they had to do things differently, but they may have relied somewhat on, on that earlier model. But principally, the the earliest bishops took an economic role uh, solely. That They were basically there to help uh, members of the church financially. And uh, all of the other ecclesiastical offices were, or all of the other, um, what do you say, the duties uh, that might uh, fall, befall, um, you know, an ecclesiastical position were filled by other people. So confessions, for example, were done before the high council and they considered, uh, you know, inappropriate behavior and and uh, sermons were preached uh, by the missionaries or by the the leading authorities of the church uh, the first presidency and the and the apostles and to the 70 uh, so uh, a bishop didn't uh, do uh, those kinds of things he didn't he didn't even play a role in passing out the sacrament uh, those were the kinds of things that the missionaries directed when they held their meetings and so the bishop just had a very narrow uh, role uh, during that early uh, Kirtland period so there was a trade-off. The the bishop now has lots more responsibilities added, but he just doesn't serve quite as long, right? Ah, uh, right. So I wanted to finish off with kind of just a, a humorous question, but but it has some implications as well. We we know of a a brother in the church named Simon's Rider, and most of us know the story. He receives a revelation uh, from the prophet Joseph Smith. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants, and Joseph gets his name spelled wrong. And we're told that Simon's writer, Brother Ryder, essentially lost his testimony over this and left the church. Is it really that simple, or is there more going on there? Uh, well, there's a lot more to this story than, than that. That, that again, uh, goes back to B.H. Roberts, who drew on um, a non-Mormon account of somebody that uh, knew Simon's writer. Uh, but uh, Simon's writer actually uh, left uh, some material as well. He he left some of his own history and he left some revelations behind that he'd copied. And he provides uh, much more information on uh, on the whole issue. Uh, it looks like he left the church not because his name was spelled wrong in the revelation. As a matter of fact, uh, his name was spelled uh, different ways, and even today his name is misspelled in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, his last name was spelled with a Y and not an I as it is today in, in that uh, scripture. But, uh, you know, his name, is mis- his name is misspelled on his headstone. Uh, it's misspelled in early uh, Disciples of Christ records where he was, was a member. And so I don't know that that was quite as much an issue. As the ma- as the fact that Joseph Smith called him to go on a mission and he didn't go, and after he didn't go, he stayed, you know, and and all the missionaries left. Uh, he began to have problems with the church, and uh, one later interview uh, that draws on information from his wife Mehetable uh, suggests that he was worried about Joseph Smith getting his property. Um, they talked about him walking on, uh, Joseph Smith walking on the property and enjoying the view from there and talking about uh, building a temple, um, on the property. Now, I'm not sure that he'd used the word temple and it was certainly understood in a very different context back then, but at least the idea that, uh, he, he worried about Joseph getting his property seems to be uh, very much a part of that. Now, if that's the case, what, where did this uh, misspelling of the name come in? Um, what happens is later, uh, Simon's writer and uh, 
Sidney Rigdon exchanged barbs in the newspaper back and forth. And Sidney Rigdon uh, misspells his name in a number of different ways. And it looks like it might actually be intentional just to insult him. Um, but it might also be because, you know, Simon's writers are Vermonter, like Joseph Smith, and they pronounce uh, their name a little differently so that you don't hear the R on the end of Ryder, for example. Uh, Joseph Smith wouldn't have said, you know, he would have said Ryder, and uh, Simon's would have said it Ryder. And uh, Sidney Rigdon, who comes from Connecticut, um, he uh, seems to not hear that R, so he drops it off of the name sometimes. And so there, there, it may be accidental, partly, and it may be intentional. But I think that that's where the misspelling comes from, is from that later insult exchange between those two, uh, rather than Simon's actually leaving the church. Gotcha. And, and I like that because I often talk on this podcast about how we get this, we get a certain version at times in Sunday school or by somebody raising their hand and making a comment and sharing something with us that really isn't totally, uh, right and is, it's sometimes completely off base. And having this kind of historical narrative to, to accompany it is, uh, is super helpful. I'm talking today with Mark Staker, a uh, author of Hearken O Ye People, the historical setting of the Joseph Smith's Ohio Revelation. Um, Mark, this book has got, I think it's 35 chapters in it. There's tons of information. I was flipping through and, and looking at different things. The one thing I didn't see in here, and, and so we don't necessarily have to, to talk at length about it, but just curious why, I didn't see anything in here about uh, the Book of Abraham and the, the papyri and the mummies. And I could be mistaken. I was just going off the headings of each chapter and a brief uh, perousing of some of the chapters. But is that something you cover in the book? Uh, not not much. I, I touch on it briefly a couple of times and the reason I didn't deal with that in detail is because this wasn't necessarily a, a detailed history of Kirtland. It focused on the historic sites that we restored and the context of the revelations that Joseph Smith had received. And so uh, the Book of Abraham, the Book of Joseph, um, those materials uh, were outside of that purview and I didn't deal with them uh, in, in this book. Sure. And I don't know what talking to, uh, to Carl Anderson, one of the things I was made aware of and uh, obviously is kind of the backdrop of your book is the idea that our Father in Heaven and the Savior Jesus Christ uh, on multiple occasions in Kirtland uh, talked with the Prophet Joseph. And, and I know Carl talks about several instances where the Savior showed up, but maybe just speak for just a second just about Kirtland in general and and the amount of church history and revelations and spiritual experiences that occurred there. Well, Kirtland was uh, f- important to the church for a number of reasons, but one was that it was the location where uh, so many of the revelations that Joseph Smith received uh, came to him in Kirtland. And the reason was because they were dealing with so many new issues and trying to lay a foundation for the church and needed answers uh, to a number of, of questions. And Kirtland was the backdrop for that. And so uh, if we want to understand those revelations, we want to understand what was going on in Kirtland at the time that led to those revelations because that provides uh, the context. Beautiful. I, I opened the book up in the very first, uh, the backside of the cover has this animated map on it. And I know the book contains lots of other maps. It's got different plans for, uh, some of the structures that were built in Kirtland. And again, as you put, as you state in the title, you give uh, a historical setting to, to the revelations that were received in Kirtland. Mark, I appreciate you being on today. I wondered if you might tell people where they can, uh, where they can find this awesome book. 
Um, it's available through Greg Coford Books, and you can get it through the publisher online. Uh, also, copies are are available through uh, Deseret Book and uh, other booksellers. Uh, uh, Kurt Bench here in in Salt Lake is uh, one of the finest uh, distributors of uh, books on Mormon history, and he has copies as well. Is it accurate to say that there were more revelations received in Kirtland than any other single place in church history? Uh, it is, yes. Awesome. I know we think often that it's Nauvoo or or perhaps even New York, but in reality, Kirtland is a huge backdrop for the spiritual uh, experiences and revelations that come through the prophet Joseph. And so, to my listeners, if you want to know, know more about those revelations, in a sense, the setting that they took place in, and to better understand the Kirtland area and uh, the uh, the nearby Hiram area where other revelations took place, I, uh, I recommend Mark's book. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being on today. I will list a uh, some links so that people can find your book easily. And uh, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming By thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood Oh, that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave 
Seal it for thy courts above. 